Well, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving time. Laura and I had a, actually an unusual one. There was nobody around, so it was just the two of us. And we went to the mountains to a restaurant for dinner. It was awesome. It was like the best Thanksgiving do. Um, so we've been working our way through the book of Mark. And one of the approaches we've taken since the very beginning, and some of you I know are saying, when are you going to finish this book? Uh, and, and we're not going to finish it today. We're at chapter 12. We're about three-fourths of the way through. Um, and actually, we're going to take a pause in the month of December and do more Advent Christmas sermons, then pick it up in January and finish it out in a few weeks then. Um, but we're, we've been, our approach is the world that Jesus was in right, in the time that the book of Mark was, was about. Uh, we try to understand a little better about the context of, of Mark's audience, the Mark who wrote it probably from his learning from Peter, the disciple Peter, uh, addressed to, written to, preached to a church in Rome in probably the 60s AD, so about 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. And, and then we try to say, well, what do we take from that and bring it into, into our lives today? How, what are the implications for us? So we understand that culture the best we can, and we say, what are the impacts on us today? How do we think about things? And one of the challenges in doing that is, you know, we're removed a couple thousand years, and, and, and some of the things that happen, it takes a great deal of scholarship to dig into, say, what was that culture like? But one of our other challenges is that we have those 2,000 years of history, and we have all of Scripture, right? So we have the fuller story of Jesus. We, we understand things that they didn't know then. We, we have the understanding that, that Mark's audience didn't see yet, which was the, the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and how that changed everything. We've seen what happened through the life of Jesus throughout history. And so it's easy for us when we look back 2,000 years at this actual happening, this interaction Jesus had with people, and sometimes it can kind of be sterile from our perspective. We have, we have so much distance in time and in theological understanding and knowledge that, that we, we go, how do we really enter that? And, and, and the story can be kind of sterile. And I think today's passage is one of those. That, that It's hard for us to really grasp what was going on. So I need to remind you of a few things. That, that for the last few weeks, um, Jesus has been pretty intense with the religious leaders and the, the, the rulers of the church and the, kind of the, that part of the culture. He, he was kind of whacking them around quite a bit, beating them upside the head, because they would come to him and try to trap him. And we, we've seen that scenario several times. And he keeps coming back at them in ways that they really don't know how to deal with. And, and it's, it's getting more and more intense. And, and as we will see over the next few chapters in Mark, it, that intensity accelerates to the point where they actually go through with their plan and their desire to have him killed. And it just keeps winding up. And it's easy for us to look at these interactions that Jesus has with these religious leaders and, and see it in kind of a, uh, they're having a nice debate. They're, they're kind of in this plate of calmness and they're, and they're interacting on an intellectual level. And that's, that's really not what it was. It was deeply emotional. And if we allow ourselves to enter into that place, remembering how intense these conversations were, we'll get a better sense of what was going on. And so to, to refresh our members, uh, memories, memories a little bit in what's going on with the, these religious leaders and Jesus, how they keep coming after him, um, um, he's, he's demonstrated his power over and over. And they've, they've come to try to trap him in some areas like how he saw the Sabbath, how he, how he would heal people, who gave you authority, who says you can forgive sins, right? All those kind of things that would, that would irritate them. And, and we had this story a few weeks ago where he entered the temple, right? He had ridden into Jerusalem on a, on a colt, well, a time we call Palm Sunday in our church calendar. And, and there was this sense of glory, uh, anticipation, but it was also people that once again saw the Messiah, Jesus, in a different way than what he really was about. And it says that he went into the town and the next day he went to the temple. And we have the story of Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers and, and the people who were selling animals, right? And, he, and that's often been referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple or, or Jesus trying to reform something. But 
That wasn't what he was doing. He was, he was really saying, those old ways of approaching things are no more. I'm the new way. And, and he turned over the money changers and, and, and the people. And they, they were doing what was allowable by the law. They were doing things that enabled people to worship in the temple the way the law said to. Sure, they were abuses, but basically he called them a den of thieves, right? a den of robbers. And we discovered in that process that it wasn't that they were committing crimes there. It was that they were a den. This was a, a hideout. Basically, when, when Jesus was talking with these people and he was reminiscing on some Old Testament passages, he says, you've turned what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people into a den of robbers. And we know that a den of robbers is not where the crime takes place, but where you go to retreat. And so he's basically looking at these leaders and saying, you were supposed to offer this temple and lead these people all people to God, but, but basically you live your life however you want, count to what God wants you to do, but then you come to this place and say, we're safe. We can hide out here. We can get away with it. This is a, right? You're a, you're, you're a den of thieves. You're going counter what God intended. And then, and then we saw in our, in our passage last week, right? They, they came to him and they once again to trap him and said, who gave you the authority to just talk this way and do this? And he confronted them. And said, well, I'll tell you what authority I have if you answer a question first. He says, John's baptism. They went and talked among themselves and said, well, we're kind of in a bind because if we say it was from God, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him then? But if we say it's from men, they, they were in a predicament because all the people saw John's baptism as really from heaven. And so they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not telling you by what authority I do these things. And and then it says they sent some people to him. They, they kept talking, and they, uh, Jesus told them a story. He told them a parable about uh, an owner of a vineyard who lived in a far-off land, and so he had some tenant farmers taking care of the vineyard. And, and he, all he asked from these tenants was that they would pay him rent, some of the wine they produced at the vineyard, and then he, he lived off in a faraway land, right? And, and the picture was that this, this, this owner would send messengers, servants, to gather what was owed him, and but these owners, these tenants of the land, kept abusing and, and, and beating up and ultimately killing the messengers he sent, and ultimately where they killed the son. This is a parable. And we talked about how these religious leaders would have ideally, naturally affiliated themselves with the owner of the land. And we know what it's like to have these horrible, no-good tenants not do what they're supposed to do. But, but Jesus turned it around on them basically to convince them that they were the low-down, no-good tenants. They were supposed to care for the vineyard, which represented Jesus uh, God's people. But, but they were abusing that. And they didn't listen to the messengers of God. So they've been, they've been called a, a den of thieves. They've been called low-down, no-good tenants who abused the messengers of God. And they're getting more and more angry. Right? And, and, and if you're in their shoes, you understand why. And it brings us to our story today. It says in, in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13, it says, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Same kind of scenario, right? They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So let's stop right there for a second because this is fascinating. Right, right. We don't really know the, the time that's taken place between this and the last story, but it says later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. So we get this picture, they sent someone. That means there was this group right, that had been encountering Jesus, interacting, arguing with him, getting mad at him, and they're meeting. It's like, how are we going to deal with this guy? And so it says they sent some Pharisees and Herodians. And 
This is a very unusual collection of people to send to Jesus, Pharisees and Herodians. We've talked a lot about the Pharisees before. The Pharisees, uh, I think, have gotten a bad rap in some ways, that they were like these evil men that were out to get Jesus. No, the, the Pharisees, by their nature, these were lay people, not people with status and positions, lay people who desperately wanted to live a life that followed the law of God. So, so they always looked at things on what is, what is God saying to us? And when the Bible says, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, they, they desperately and sincerely wanted to say, what does it mean to be holy like God is holy? And so they, they developed a system. They developed rules that they could follow and abide by, right? And, and, and so they developed this system, but they, they desperately, absolutely placed religious life at the top of what they were supposed to be about. We follow the laws of God. So the Pharisees came, but it's just they also sent Herodians. Herodians, by their name, are people who follow or are linked to Herod, who was the, uh, the ruler that was assigned by Caesar to oversee that part of Judea, this, this Herod. And, and we know that Herod was uh, half Jewish and outwardly followed, the, observed the Orthodox church things in, in, the, in the Jewish faith. But the Herodians saw that the best way to have life go well for you was to be clearly aligned with the government of Herod. Uh, they, they clearly saw that if we want to make things go well and keep our livelihood and keep our safety, we need to really put our work into making sure we comply with what the government wants well. And so we have this group that says all that matters is religious obedience to God's law, nothing else, and this group that says you better comply with what the government says if you want things to go well for you. And so these two groups that on the seas would be enemies come together. Why? Because they have a common enemy. And that's Jesus. And if they were to answer the question, should they pay the tax to Caesar, the, the Pharisees would say, no. No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't pay that tax. There, there was an additional tax that had been added in about the year 6 AD when, when Jude, uh, Judea became a province. The new leadership imposed a head tax just to add to all the other taxes they were paying. And, and they were supposed to pay it with this coin that we'll see later in the story that has a, a picture of, of Caesar Augustus on it, which is like an idol. And we as good Jewish people don't have idols. Right? We don't do graven images. We don't, and we have to use that to buy things. We, we would not pay Galilee, who basically revolted and tried to start a, a huge revolution. We will not pay this tax. And what happened is, is these people he gathered, they were, they were thrown in prison. And life did not go well for them. So the, the Herodians would answer the question, of course you'd pay the tax. Unless you want awful things to happen to you. So, so they come to Jesus. And they ask him a yes-no question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And so Jesus is in this bind. They had gone through this place of trying to flatter him and butter him up, right? All these things. You're a great teacher. You're not a respecter of persons. You don't, you don't treat people differently based on their status in life. They had seen that, right? Why do you eat with these kind of people, you know? We'd seen this play out, and, and they're buttering him up. They're trying to flatter him so they can get him to answer this question where they think they can trap him. Because if he says, you shouldn't pay the taxes, that'll sound great to all the zealots that were against Rome. But if he says, you should pay the taxes, then, then he turns against that group. Right? So they have him trapped, they think. But Jesus kind of turns it on them as we move on. He says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He didn't have one. No pockets, probably. Judas carried the money bag. Bring me denarius and let me look at it. And they brought a coin. And he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, 
Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. They asked him a yes-no question and he did not give them a yes-no answer. He gave them something profoundly different that, that, that impacted that so They were amazed at him, but probably, once again, they, they, were, they were stupefied. They were, in this case, probably incensed. You didn't, you didn't answer that right. You, you've put us in a bind. Give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to, God's, give to God what is God's. And, and he caught them because they wanted a yes-no answer. And, and that idea of, of people from the community coming to ask Jesus or his followers or us questions about this, this ongoing tension between God and government is something that's gone out through on the ages. Throughout all the ages, this has been a challenge to understand and to wrestle with. How do we, how do we deal with following God? And how do we deal with government no matter, no matter where we live? And, and Jesus gives us an answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. What I think is interesting is, is almost this uh, flippant way. He, he really didn't seem to care that much. Uh, he pretty much de-emphasized the government. There, there's this picture. Give me, give me this coin. What's on the coin? And it has this picture of Caesar. And, and there's an inscription on it, and you can see pictures of these coins. Some still exist in museums. It, basically, the divine Caesar, uh, Augustus, son of the divine, son of the divine Caesar. And, and the flip side, it had a picture either of Caesar's wife or, or of a goddess. But, but this coin in and of itself went against everything that the, the Hebrew people believed, right? The Ten Commandments talk about don't have graven images, don't, don't have idols. And, and this was an idol of Caesar. It had a, had a picture of Caesar. It has an inscription. And, and, and those leaders in that day really saw themselves as divine. They saw themselves as little gods. They were the head of the state and the head of the religion, all wrapped up into one. And it shows itself every day on this coin. This coin that these religious leaders didn't seem to have a problem carrying in their pocket or in their bag, even when they went into the temple to interact with Jesus. So, so it couldn't have been that big of a deal that they have this graven image, this idol in their pocket. And so Jesus basically, I think, is kind of flipping it back on them. You, you come and go. In fact, this is the type of coin that you had to have to pay a tribute to exchange at the money table in the temple to have the right kind of coin to give to God. Get rid of the one with Caesar's head. So it, it served a purpose. Jesus is basically saying, you know, if you live in this community under this government structure and you benefit general security, the economic opportunities, even though you're a, an oppressed people, if you, if you somehow benefit from this, take this coin. Pay it back to, pay it back to Caesar. But that's all he has. It, it's his idol. It's his image. Give it to him. It, it belongs to him. No, no big deal. And... Give to God what belongs to God. Now that's the point of the passage. Yeah, yeah if you benefit from this, give it to him. That's all he has. He's, he thinks he's all that. The gift of God's what is God's. And what do we know from Scripture is God's? What bears God's image and God's inscription? We do. You, you, you owe to Caesar what has his image on it. You owe to God what has his image on it. And it says so clearly, we are made in his image. We have been imprinted with the image of God. We are called his people. We have that inscription. We have that image. And, and Jesus is saying, you owe God everything because you bear his image. This is a, this is a powerful statement. 
This, this is something that transcends all concepts of, of government versus God. This is, one of the things Jesus is not doing is saying you can divide your life into two categories. You have the, the government life or the secular life, and you have the God life or the sacred life. He's saying, no, 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 no. God is overall. God has it all. You owe him everything, and in that, you live in this place and get a benefit, so pay the tax. But are you giving God what bears his image? And that is a challenging challenging question. You see, there's been this ongoing challenge, we talked a bit briefly, this ongoing challenge between the relationship between God and government. And we've known throughout history that an unhealthy relationship or union between the church and the state has always been the undoing of both. Whether that was in, in some of the Roman empires where, where we have the, the church is basically over the government and the, and the government is just a puppet of the church. That was destined for failure. We've seen that in other situations where the, the church has wanted to impact uh, or the state has wanted to impact what the church can teach and, and that should, has been devastating to both throughout history. In fact, we have to be very cautious about politicizing the church because that leads to, to power struggles and, and, and struggling about things that, that, that detract us from our true purpose. And, and it's a challenge because those things are right there every day. Those, those challenges and those questions that we get. See, it's too often it can happen that the church can easily become identified solely with a political agenda. That happened with the Herodians. Right? They, they, were, they were Jewish. They were followers of God. They were God's chosen people. But they saw the best way to accomplish that was being aligned with the government. And the other group that said, we want absolutely nothing to do with the government. And, and Jesus said, you really can't live in either place. You, you have to follow God. And God wants you to live as good citizens. He wants you to be exemplary citizens. But, but I think what he's saying is we are to model community and culture rather than try to reform it. See, what Jesus doesn't say in this passage is he doesn't go into details about, and so as followers of mine, and you're followers of mine, and this is what the kingdom of God looks like, here is how you should best interact with the government to make it accomplish the things that you think it should accomplish. I, I don't see that anywhere in here. It says, give to Caesar what Caesar's. I give to God what is God's, which is everything. You see, what happens too often is, and we think of this idea of we need to reform government, but we, we can't. Human nature is human nature. And we, we are fooling ourselves if we think that if we only have the structure changed or if we only have the right people in charge, then everything will be better. But it never happens that way. Humanity is a dog-eat-dog world. It's a ends-justifies-the-means approach, and all governments are that way, and, and Jesus has talked about that already in the book of Mark. Right? You know the Gentiles like to lord it over those, but not so with you. Instead, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. He's already laid out this picture of what does the kingdom look like compared to what human governments look like. And it will always go wrong, as it has always gone wrong in history, if our approach is to say, if we just get the right candidates or the right policies passed, then hearts will change. Uh -uh. True change happens only from hearts that change, and those hearts only change when God is at work. And it's a dilemma, and it's a challenge. And these, these leaders, these Herodian yes-no answer that they could get him on, they really didn't care about his answer about taxes. They, they, they had an agenda. They were about opposing him. Why? Because he had already set forth that what he was about had a deep, lasting impact on the whole way they saw life, including their livelihood. 
We make our minds messing with that. He's messing with everything we hold dear, everything we think is right, and he's turning that upside down. And we don't like it. We have to get rid of him. So let's get him. Now, one of those challenges we have, fellow Jesus, we're often asked these yes-no questions that put us in a bind, that that make us take a side that's really not about the issue, but it's about an agenda. It's about how do they trap us? How do they discount who who Jesus is? Examples of those would be things that are that are absolutely in in the news all the time in our in our country. We we can be asked, uh, is same-sex marriage okay? Let's say yes, you'll be labeled a revisionist, a progressive who denies the authority of Holy Scripture. If you say no, you'll be accused of being homophobic, prejudiced, and denying the gospel's message of love and inclusivity. Yes or no? Or maybe issues like abortion. Is abortion permissible? And you say yes, you'll be seen as supporting the killing of babies. Who ignores the commandment against murder and going against the value and sanctity of human life. If you say no, you'll contradict a woman's constitutional right as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes or no? If they ask you, do you support the wars that we're involved in as a nation? If you say no, you'll be seen as unpatriotic and failing to support our troops. If you say yes, then you have to answer for the violence and death and destruction that seems so contrary to Jesus' life and teaching. Who did you vote for? Whoever you answer, somebody's going to be upset. Because somehow we have put our hopes that by electing the right person or the right policies, we will somehow change human hearts. It does not happen that way, and Jesus knows that. In whatever form it takes, in our culture or other ones, the the Pharisaic and Herodian conspiracy is about power and manipulation and agendas, and those things always destroy relationships and undermine faith. And it's too evident in our culture, in our politics, in our religion, and in our churches. Jesus has asked this profound question that if we just look at it sterilely as these people said, hey, you're a wise, learned man. Should we pay taxes or not? That is not what is going on in that question. Jesus' call to us in the middle of that, once again, is not to reform our culture, but to be an example of true community, to be an example of what it means to follow him. I absolutely love living in America. I think it's an amazing country. I will be the first to say it was founded on principles that are from the Judeo-Christian ethic. Things like the rule of law and liberty and freedom. Those are amazing things, and I love living here, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But my allegiance is not to, first of all, to the United States of America. It's to Jesus. When Jesus said to the people, come follow me, he didn't say, come follow a government system. He said, come follow me, because I am creating a new colony of people that are mine, that transcends all national boundaries. So, so Jesus' answer to the Herodians and the Pharisees plays out no matter what time or culture or nation you live in. Should I pay the tax or not? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is all he has. Give it to him. It bears his image. But give God what belongs to God. You see, we are his true currency. And it's not something to be thrown away and just given back like a coin. That's easy to do. What what tripped up these religious leaders was that Jesus says, yeah, give to Caesar, go ahead, but, but are you giving to God what is God's? 
And we'll see later in Mark that that statement of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself encompasses everything. Give to God what is God's. One owes Caesar what bears his image and name. One owes God what bears his image and name. We owe our whole selves to God. And so he said, what do we do? Well, how does that that play out? What does that look like? Well, I think we have the idea that the church, God's people, should be a place, should be a people that operates and lives differently. Well, I think some of the things are we, we, we should show and demonstrate and live what healthy relationships look like. Be a spouse, to be a parent, to be a friend, to be an employee, to be an employer. What, is, what those relationships look like? They should, they should look like something different than the world around us. That should be absolutely a commitment of ours. The the church should be a people that that show how to truly serve and help the poor. It should be something that that people look and go, wow, how did that happen? It should be something so counter to the world around us that, that people marvel at it and can't understand it. The church should be a place and a people that exhibit confession and forgiveness in ways that that people would never even fathom. And, and I mean, the most amazing example I've seen of living counter to the world around you happened, boy, it was, what, a year and a half ago now in Charleston, South Carolina? Dylan Roof, the, the murderer, and who was back in the news again the past week or so, showing he, he's, he's been leveled, competent to stand trial. He, he little neo-Nazi young man that walked into this black church during a Bible study and killed nine people. And the church's reaction was, we forgive you. And all the world around them went, what? That's not how things happen. No, you need to point fingers. You need to be angry. You need to go after these people. You need to push back twice as hard as what you got. And they said, no, we forgive you. And that messed with everybody. Because why? They, they, were, they were living in a way that says, our allegiance, our people, our colony is as the people of God. And this is how the people of God show up in these kind of situations. That, that doesn't take away the pain. That doesn't take away the injustice. That doesn't take away all the stuff that's part of that horrible circumstance. But the response that they said, we forgive, that messed with everybody in deeply profound ways. We should be a place, the church should be a place that's different from the world around us because we should be people who, who truly show what the absence of racism looks like. We should be people that absolutely shows what the equality of all people and genders looks like. How people come together uniquely as they follow Jesus is different than the world has always shown people to be. That should be what we're about. That should be what following Jesus is about. And that's different than the world. We should be a place and a people that, that show what it's like for a business to operate with integrity. That we treat people the right way. That we do things the right way. And we should be a place that, that shows how reconciliation can take place when we fail. See, following Jesus is not always about doing everything right the right way at the right time. It's, it's when you fail, you know how to, to reconcile. You know how to tear down walls. You know how to forgive. You know how to confess. That's not hypocrisy, you say you're one thing. No, that's, that's following Jesus. And it's a, it's a challenge. 
Jesus' statement, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is, God, what is God's, can, can come across as kind of flippant. And Yeah, that's what he said. That was amazing. Yep, we should pay our taxes. Oh, man, this is so much more than that. This, this is, this is life-altering and culture-altering. Say, are we going to be those kind of people who understand that, yeah, we, we are great citizens. We, we, we do the things that good citizens do. We're engaged in the process. We're engaged in living well. The things that are good in our world, we should participate in those. And yet we know that our kingdom, the kingdom of God, is different. And we give everything to God. Why? Because we bear his image and we are called by his name and we want to wear that name well. One of the things that's gotten us in trouble, I believe, as, as churches throughout history is that we've, we've too often had too close of an alignment with our government systems. I mean, even think about the last election and every election that goes on. It's like one of the questions who are the Christians? Who are the evangelical Christians voting for? Who are the mainline Christians voting for? Who are the Catholics voting for? Right? Ability to speak truth into life because we're seen as so embedded with it. We, we want to be great examples and great models, but we want to keep first to Christ, first to the things of God. And we need to be able to speak to those things. Otherwise, we're seen as just trying to, just absolutely full of all kinds of stuff that impacts us every day in our world. It's a challenge because it's easier to try to go for a political agenda than to follow Jesus. But that's our call. That's where life happens. That's what we're about. Be an incredible example and give to God what is God's. We owe him everything. Jesus answered their question. It wasn't a yes-no answer. It wasn't a simple answer. And it, and it hits us today. He gave us not a simple answer, but something profound to think about and ponder and wrestle through as, as individuals, as families, as a church, as, as the body of Christ. How do we live in this world, in this time, in this place where we are, as, as people in the United States of America? How do we live as the colony of Jesus? Come follow me. Come follow me. Let's pray.